Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and on this episode, I will be covering the Harlequin tea set, our final Quinn Satterthwaite short story. These stories are so beloved on this podcast. Catherine and I had such a great time covering the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection some time ago, as well as The Love Detectives, which was the odd short story Christy wrote around the same time she was writing all of the other Quinn Satterthwaite stories that were collected in The Mysterious Mr. Quinn. So we covered all of those, and this story is the true outlier here. But before I get into all of that, (laughs) I do just have to note something strange here about where this episode falls in the podcast. I did not do this on purpose. I really promise. But this story is shockingly similar to the short story I just covered on my surprise spooktacular episode. That would be SOS from the Hound of Death collection. And we know that Christy did this a lot. She recycled plots or plot devices or more accurately, puzzle devices, uh, you know, employing the same tricks among different characters and situations. And it's really shockingly easy to miss these similarities between Christie's stories, unless you have the likes of a Tony Medawar to set you straight, for instance. Christy once even had her fictional alter ego, Ariadne Oliver, call out this writerly trick. Mrs. Oliver talked about how some of her mysteries are fundamentally the same. And I believe it was Poirot himself who pointed that out to her, since he is not only a clever detective, but a clever reader. But of course, and that just means Christy was well aware of what she was doing. And I've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about how I've come to appreciate this masterful recycling as a core aspect of her genius. Unfortunately, we do not have masterful recycling here. The issue is that the puzzle in SOS was fairly thin, along with an awkward stuck-in-its-time element. And I'm sorry to say that Christie has more or less lifted that thin puzzle from 1926, <laughs> along with the awkward stuck-in-its-time element. And 45 years later, all the way in 1971, she repurposed it in what I think is a slightly less good way. I also am convinced that the Christie of 1971 was not aware that she was recycling SOS. (laughs) Though if you have evidence to the contrary, please write in because I would love to hear it and I will never pass up an opportunity to give Christie the benefit of the doubt. And on that note, while I am still preambling here, I just have to share an email that I got from one of you, dear listeners, about something I said on the SOS episode. I knew I was courting controversy when I made this comment, and I'm so glad someone chose to clap back. So here's what one of you wrote. I enjoyed the episode on SOS, even if it missed the mark when linking brawn to the Brit's reputation for poor cuisine. Brawn, or head cheese, is actually, one, quite tasty when made well, and two, part of the cuisine of many countries and regions besides Great Britain, including several with excellent culinary reputations like Italy, France, Belgium, and Louisiana, where it's part of Cajun cuisine. Fair enough, listener. Justice for brawn slash head cheese. Now, there's a hashtag I'd like to see flourish on the interwebs. Uh, So moving along now to the Harlequin tea set. Let's get into the publication history here. This story was not serialized, which makes sense because it was written extremely late. I already mentioned the year. That would be 1971. And I believe this is the very last short story Agatha Christie published. 
It appeared in the UK collection Winter's Crimes Number no. 3, which was published not by Collins Crime Club or Collins at all, but by Macmillan. And I did a little online digging to try to find out more about this Winter's Crimes series, which seems to be an ongoing anthology Macmillan put out, uh, where mystery authors would contribute original stories for an annual collection. I was able to find a reference to a Winter's Crimes 22, which was published in 1990. So this was obviously a long-running endeavor. P.D. James contributed at least once, for instance, in Winter's Crimes number 15. So this was obviously a prestige thing, the sort of project you would want to be associated with as a mystery writer. And on the cover of Winter's Crimes number three, Agatha Christie's name appears prominently, as well as the names of two other authors who caught my eye. That would be Christiana Brand and Julian Simons. So she was in good company here, but given that Christie was obviously not publishing many or indeed any short stories in 1971, uh, certainly not like she was doing early on in her career in the 1920s, I imagine there has to be some sort of a story behind why and how she was convinced to write this original Quinn Satterthwaite story for the anthology. I wasn't able to find any sort of anecdote about this, though. My usual resources failed me, so please give me a holler and start spilling that tea about uh, why Agatha Christie returned to Quinn Satterthwaite so late in her career. She did talk in her autobiography about how she only wrote those stories when she wanted to, so perhaps as she was getting on in years and she was doing a lot of reminiscing and being very nostalgic, it made sense for her to revisit Mr. Satterthwaite and Mr. Quinn one last time. I'll talk more about this in my summary, but I do think the mysterious Mr. Quinn world is a very good fit for late career Christie, actually. So after its initial publication in 1971 in that anthology, the story appeared in the UK collection Problem at Palenza Bay and Other Stories in 1991. And then in the US, it was the titular story in the 1997 collection, The Harlequin Tea Set and Other Stories. All right, let's talk about our victim. But just as in SOS, uh, naming the victim is tricky here because what we really have is not a tale of murder, but a tale of attempted murder. And it would be a bit of a spoiler to say who the victim is up front. So for now, let's just say that it is our protagonist who, just like Mortimer Cleveland in SOS, is suffering from some car troubles at the beginning of our story. But whereas in SOS, it was immediately a spooky and horror-laden situation, out on the Wiltshire Downs. Here we have a completely different atmosphere because it's Mr. Satterthwaite whose car is giving him problems. And I would say just as the creepy atmosphere was the best thing about SOS, the atmosphere of this story is also its best element. Because the Quinn Satterthwaite stories were always very much about atmosphere weren't they? And Christie really does revert to all those themes she loved to hit so hard and so often when writing one of these little supernatural tales. We've got Mr. Satterthwaite complaining about how little he's done in his life and how he's an onlooker. We've got Mr. Quinn appearing out of nowhere with multicolored light shining on him to make him look like a Harlequin. And we've got maybe the best Mr. Quinn exit of all, which is surprising since we already had Mr. Quinn essentially jumping off a cliff in podcast favorite, The Man from the Sea, and then maybe kind of sort of becoming like an angel or a demon or whatever in at Harlequin's Lane. That would be the final story in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. But this exit is right up there with those. Uh, we'll get there. And trust me, it's worth the wait. So Mr. Satterthwaite may or may not be the means of averting a poisoning in a teacup, which hmm, is precisely the way that our would-be victim was almost murdered in SOS. 
All right, let's talk about our suspects. And just as in the case of SOS, the suspects all consist of one clan, because this is very much an attempted murder en famille, though the family here is a bit more sprawling than in SOS. So first up, we have Tom Addison, and he is the patriarch of this family. Tom is the childhood friend of Mr. Satterthwaite and the elderly ancestral owner of the beautiful Doverton Kingsburn estate, which is where our story takes place. Next, we have Simon Gilead, who is Tom's son-in-law. Simon married Tom's daughter, Lily, who tragically died many years ago. And Tom has since remarried our third suspect, Beryl Gilead. And Beryl was a widow herself when she married Tom. So Beryl and Tom both lost their respective spouses before marrying. This is a second marriage for both of them. And part of the reason that worked out so well for them is that Simon had a son with his first wife, Lily, and Beryl had a son with her first husband, Christopher. And these sons are very important characters in the story. So first up, we have Roland Gilead, who is Simon and the deceased Lily's son. He is in his early 20s at the start of this story. He was just a baby when Lily was killed in a car accident and when his father remarried Beryl. So he's essentially only known Beryl as a mother his whole life. And then his would-be brother, they've been raised as brothers, is the son of Beryl and her deceased husband, Christopher. And that would be Timothy Eden, who is almost exactly the same age as Roland. And wouldn't you know, both of these boys have red hair. Apparently, Roland inherited his looks from his father, Simon, who's also a ginger. And Timothy took after his mother, Beryl, who has auburn hair. Hmm, good thing Hastings isn't around. You know, he would have been like, Auga! <laughs> We also have two other members of this sprawling family. The first is Dr. Horton, who is also Patriarch Tom Addison's son-in-law. Dr. Horton married Tom's second daughter, Maria. And I'm pronouncing it Maria and not Mariah, because Tom Addison's wife was actually from Spain. Her name was Pilar. And while Lily took after her English father, Maria very much took after her Spanish mother. And thank goodness those names lined up with their looks. <laughs> very convenient for our purposes here. Summarizing this plot makes things less confusing. Maria married this local doctor, Dr. Horton, but then she very tragically died in childbirth when she was giving life to our final suspect, Inez Horton, who is just under 20 at the start of the story. So this is Dr. Horton's daughter and Tom Addison's granddaughter. And she very much takes after her Spanish grandmother, Pilar, who is also deceased. And again, thank goodness uh, Inez has a Spanish sounding name because it reinforces her looks. And if you're getting Gina vibes from They Do It With Mirrors, as well as Pilar Estravados vibes from Hercule Poirot's Christmas, and also oddly from Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express, but let's not go there, uh, then just know that you are not alone. <laughs> I was very much thinking of Gina, especially from They Do It With Mirrors, when Inez popped up in this story. Okay, so those are our suspects. And before we get into the world as it actually is, I just want to talk about how you really can tell that this story was written late in Christie's career. There's a lot of carping about old person stuff, especially in the beginning. And much more importantly, the storytelling has that loose or even slack aspect that Christie's prose started to acquire very late in her career. 
So assuming she wrote this at some point in and around 1970, we are very much in Halloween Party, Passenger to Frankfurt, Nemesis, even Elephants Can Remember territory here, and it really shows. And yet, as I already alluded to, I'm not going to be complaining about Christie's writing here the way I may have at times when covering those later novels, because I actually think the Quinn Satterthwaite stories are remarkably suited to this looser style of Christie's in her late career. I actually really wish she had written more of these Quinn Satterthwaite stories in the 70s. That dreamy, repetitive quality, which is absolutely there in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection in 1930, it just fits like a glove for later Christie. And I actually really, really enjoyed this story. Does it need to be as long as it is for as slight as the puzzle is? Of course it does not. But did I devour every word and every mood of it? Of course I did. So I just wanted to note that up top and to say how thrilled I was that this swan song for the mysterious Harley Quinn and the shriveled socialite, (laughs) Mr. Satterthwaite, is every bit as fabulous as they deserve. Okay, so we open on Mr. Satterthwaite having some car troubles, which is actually how the previous Quinn Satterthwaite short story at the Bells and Motley opens up. So I'm like literally three lines in and already having deja vu, which is exactly the kind of trippy, disorienting reading experience one wants to be having when reading a Quinn Satterthwaite story. Mr. Satterthwaite has a new car and it's broken down and he is mightily irritated by this. First of all, he finds these newfangled cars annoying, full of new gadgets, different kinds of windows, an instrument panel newly and differently arranged, handsome in its glistening wood but being unfamiliar, your groping hand hovered uneasily over fog, lights, windscreen wipers, the choke, etc. All these things with knobs in a place you didn't expect them. And when your gleaming new purchase failed in performance, your local garage uttered the intensely irritating words, teething troubles, Splendid car, sir, these roadsters, super superbos, all the latest accessories, but bound to have their teething troubles, you know. Ha ha. Just as though a car was a baby. <laughs> I did just mention we're in Nemesis and Elephants Can Remember territory here. This is crotchety Christie railing against the youngins and their innovations, and I cherish it so. I also think that a rich person like Mr. Satterthwaite complaining about their luxury car not working perfectly right out the gate might be the official new definition of champagne problems. <laughs> also, if you thought that Christie was going to miss the opportunity to connect the phrase teething troubles to her own obsession with tooth problems in old age, which we saw on full display in Elephants Can Remember, I hate to disappoint whoever you are, but let me go ahead and delight the rest of us here with that excerpt from the text. It's right after Satterthwaite's mechanic uses the dreaded phrase, teething troubles again. Here's what Christie writes. Mr. Satterthwaite did not cluck this time. He gnashed his own teeth, a phrase he had often read in books in which an old age he seemed to have gotten to the habit of doing himself, due perhaps to the slight looseness of his upper plate. Really, teething trouble. Toothache. Teeth gnashing. False teeth. One's whole life centered, he thought, about teeth. Okay. Mr. Satterthwaite does eventually move on from the subject of teeth. He is on his way to visit old friends in the country for the weekend, but now he has to wait for his car to be fixed just a few miles away from his destination, which again is the estate Doverton Kingsburn. So rather than just go up to the house in a taxi, as his chauffeur reasonably suggests, and have the car sent up after it's repaired, Mr. Satterthwaite insists on walking into the little village that exists on the outskirts of the estate. This village is called Kingsburn Ducis. That's spelled D-U-C-I-S. I believe that's how it's pronounced in British English. Someone will let me know if it's not. <laughs> But regardless of how it's pronounced, this is another fantastic place name of Christie's. And in Kingsburn Ducis, there is a cafe called 
Oh, how I wish Catherine were here because she would so delight in telling you all the name of this cafe. And spoiler, but it is not one of Chrissy's more fantastic place names because this cafe is, of course, called the Harlequin Cafe. Of course it is. And it seems like it's really been quite some time since Mr. Satterthwaite had any sort of interactions with his and our beloved Harley Quinn, because he doesn't even really know why the name of this cafe stirs him so. It actually makes me wonder how old Mr. Satterthwaite is. Christy even mentions in this story that he is now of an advanced age. And if Poirot was pushing past 110 in Elephants Can Remember, then Mr. Satterthwaite, who was always quite elderly in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection, which came out in 1930, the individual short stories being published for the most part several years before that, well, we are nearly now 50 years beyond those stories. So my God, Mr. Satterthwaite is Methuselah-ing here. I did just make that a verb. But he's not so far gone that he fails to associate the word Harlequin with a whole bunch of memories that come flooding in. And I'll quote again from the text, all sorts of places on an island in Corsica at Monte Carlo, watching the croupier spinning his roulette wheel, a house in the country, all sorts of places. So that's a nice callback Christie's making there to the earlier Mysterious Mr. Quinn stories. The Soul of the Croupier, of course, which took place in Monte Carlo. The World's End, which took place in Corsica and features the Duchess of Leith, who Satterthwaite name checks a little later on in the story. Mr. Satterthwaite never misses an opportunity to name check a duchess, don't you know? She also directly references the short story Harlequin's Lane later. So back to the Harlequin Cafe, Mr. Satterthwaite is there, and on one side of this cafe, there is seating for customers to partake of the restaurant's apparently garbage offerings, save for its Turkish coffee, which is served by a barista named Ali. We'll get there in a moment. The other side of the cafe sells china, quite good china, Mr. Satterthwaite realizes, including a, wouldn't you know, Harlequin tea set, which is basically a set of cups and saucers that are different colors from each other, as opposed to the usual monochrome color scheme of a tea set. Quoting again from the text, this is a tea set of largish cups and saucers, each one of a different color. Blue, red, yellow, green, pink, purple. Really, Mr. Satterthwaite thought, a wonderful show of color. And it's actually the word Harlequin in a large card advertising this Harlequin tea set that had caught his eye from the car when his chauffeur was driving rather slowly through the village's one street looking for a garage in which to repair the car. And now that he's in this cafe, Mr. Satterthwaite finds himself looking for Mr. Quinn, which makes him feel foolish because it's been so many years since he's seen him. And that makes me sad because it's obvious Mr. Satterthwaite is super lonely here. But put away your hankies because guess what? A tall man in a dark suit came in. His back was to Mr. Satterthwaite, who thought that he had an attractive back, lean, strong, well-muscled, but rather dark and sinister looking because there was very little light in the shop. But then the sun comes out, and of course, in this cafe, there is a colored glass window through which the sunlight pours. And Christy writes, The sun came through the window and lit up the dingy cafe. In some curious way, it lit up the back of the man who had just sat down there. Instead of a dark black silhouette, there was now a festoon of colors, red and blue and yellow. And suddenly, Mr. Satterthwaite realized that he was looking at exactly what he had hoped to find. Oh, 
Do you hear that, listeners? It's the sound of my heart beating ever so quickly because we have our Quinn Satterthwaite reunion at long last, and it is quite a doozy. First of all, Mr. Quinn has a dog with him, a small black dog named Hermes, who acts as Mr. Quinn's messenger, bringing that special order for Turkish coffee to Ali, who is working in the back of the cafe. Mr. Quinn is the one who is in the know here as to the best thing to order at the Harlequin Cafe. Makes sense. And we can see what Christy is up to here, naming this dog Hermes, who of course was the messenger of the gods. This Hermes is the messenger of Mr. Quinn. Hmm. Do you think Christy could be trying to tell us something about Mr. Quinn's otherworldly status here? <laughs> but in all seriousness, I really love that she does this by way of a dog character. <laughs> it reminds me of the Christy of Poster and a Fate who is clearly as interested in Hannibal the dog as any of the human characters, much more interested actually in Hannibal than most of the human characters in that story. She really did love her dog. So I love that there is a dog here in this late career story. And Mr. Satterthwaite and Mr. Quinn go on for many, 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 many pages about so many things. The meaninglessness of time, for instance. Mr. Satterthwaite tries multiple times to comment on how long it's been since Mr. Quinn last visited him. And Mr. Quinn insists on saying stuff like, does time matter? And Mr. Satterthwaite is like, mm, I guess not. <laughs> when Mr. Satterthwaite asks Mr. Quinn what he's been up to, here's the cryptic response he gets. Well, I have been here and there. In different countries, different climates, different adventures. But mostly, as usual, just passing by. Thanks for clearing that up, Harley. <laughs> At one point in this story, Christy actually does refer in the third person to Mr. Quinn as Harley. And it's the one note in this story that sounded false to my ears. I don't think Mr. Quinn should ever be referred to as Harley, other than by cheeky podcasters. So the cryptic Mr. Quinn is much more interested in what Mr. Satterthwaite is going to do and who he is going to see, because it seems as though Mr. Satterthwaite may have some work to do and that Mr. Quinn may be filling the role of catalyst one last time. So Mr. Satterthwaite sketches out the history of this family he is about to visit and the relationships among the various family members, which I already sketched out when going through the list of suspects. We don't have to rehash it. He's kept in regular touch with all these people, but he hasn't seen them all that recently. And he's both nervous and excited about getting down with the whole fam in a matter of minutes, really. But this little tete-a-tete with Mr. Quinn is interrupted when a certain auburn-haired, comely matron bustles into the shop, saying there was an accident with some of the cups in her tea set this morning, and she's expecting guests, so she needs to buy a few more cups to replace the broken ones. Specifically, I'm quoting now from the text, a blue and a green, and perhaps I'd better have another red one as well in case. This woman would be Beryl Gilead, of course, and there's this exchange between her and Mr. Satterthwaite in the cafe that I think showcases just how loose and baggy Christie's previously crisp dialogue has become by this point in her career. I just want to read it out in a loving way. This just allows us the opportunity to bask in this Christie story a little longer. Beryl says, I do believe, yes, of course, my father-in-law, Tom, has got a photograph of you, and you must be the guest we are expecting this afternoon. You must be Mr. Satterthwaite. Exactly, said Mr. Satterthwaite. That is who I am. But I shall have to apologize very much for being so much later in arriving than I said. But unfortunately, my car has had a breakdown. It's in the garage now being attended to. 
Oh, how miserable for you, but what a shame. But it's not tea time yet. Don't worry, we've put it off anyway. As you probably heard, I ran down to replace a few cups, which unfortunately got swept off a table this morning. Whenever one has anyone to lunch or tea or dinner, something like that always happens. Not the most efficient or scintillating dialogue Christy has ever written. But again, not the end of the world in a Quinn Satterthwaite story. Mr. Satterthwaite has already complained multiple times by this point about how nothing has ever really happened to him in his life, so it's all good. (laughs) Mr. Satterthwaite actually gets Mr. Quinn invited up to the house, but Mr. Quinn declines, saying he has another engagement he's already late for. Hmm. Sure, Harley. Sure. And as they part, Mr. Satterthwaite asks, And when shall I see you again? I wonder now. And Mr. Quinn responds, Oh, it will not be very long. I think you will recognize me when you do see me. I mean, considering what happened at the end of Harlequin's Lane, by which I mean both the end of that story and at the actual end of the lane depicted in that story, I would be very scared when Mr. Quinn talks about being recognized. I think someone's going to shuffle off his skin suit and reveal himself to be the angel slash demon slash whatever (laughs) he's been all along. But perhaps to distract Mr. Satterthwaite from these troubling thoughts, Mr. Quinn goes a bit further than he normally does in the catalyzing department, supplying Mr. Satterthwaite with a word that he says will somehow be meaningful and useful to him as he makes his visit to this family. And that word is Daltonism. And here's where Google is really not a friend to Agatha Christie, because even though someone reading this in 1971 could easily put the book down, go to a dictionary, and look up that word, it's a heck of a lot easier to mosey on over to whatever device happens to be near you, or more likely slip that device out of your pocket and just Google that term. I'm not even going to include this as an entry in our Bridge O' Clues, because that's exactly what I did when I came across this word. Daltonism is another word for colorblindness. So let's just keep that in mind as Mr. Satterthwaite finally arrives at Doverton Kingsburn. And we have some of the usual Christie elegizing about houses from one's youth. Doverton Kingsburn, said Mr. Satterthwaite to himself. He said it very softly under his breath. The two words still meant to him what they had always meant. A place of joyous reunion. A place where he couldn't get there too quickly. A place where he was going to enjoy himself, even though so many of those whom he had known would not be there any longer. But Tom would be there, his old friend Tom, and he thought again of the grass and the lake and the river and the things they had done together as boys. Oh, Mr. Satterthwaite. Oh, Dame Agatha. And everything is just lovely at Doverton, Kingsburn. Mr. Satterthwaite has tea with the family out on the lawn. And it actually reminded me a lot of the tea scene in The Mysterious Affair at Styles. actually. I have to wonder if that was intentional. It felt like a throwback and just very idyllic in a very period English way. It feels like Mr. Satterthwaite is stepping into a different era, an era of his youth, even though there are these two strapping redheaded boys here. And they're both flirting with Inez, who is also young. Mr. Satterthwaite, that old gossip, is already trying to figure out which of the boys might end up with her or if she's already attached to someone else. I appreciated this musing of his. Was Tom hoping that Roland would marry Inez? Or would he have a fear of first cousins marrying? Though throughout history, Mr. Satterthwaite thought, brothers had married sisters with no ill results. Really? Mr. Satterthwaite? Mm, I think the Habsburgs and their noses and chins would beg to differ. But then Mr. Satterthwaite starts to focus on Beryl Gilead, who is making a bit of a nuisance of herself by fussing over the tea things. She's a very fussy hostess. And wouldn't you know, she accidentally brushes a red cup off the table. It's Timothy's cup, 
Remember, Timothy is the other strapping young redheaded man, the non-biological brother of Roland. They grew up together. And Beryl replaces Timothy's red cup with a pale blue cup and saucer, putting the Meerschaum pipe that Timothy smokes. He smokes a very specific pipe. This has been noted earlier in the story. Uh, She puts that pipe against the cup. Then she brings out the teapot again and pours the tea into the cup and moves away. And when the young people come back and Timothy goes to his cup, which has the pipe against it, Inez laughs and says, you're drinking out of the wrong cup. And Timothy says, no, it's my cup because my pipe's against it. And just as Timothy is about to drink from this cup, Mr. Satterthwaite shoots up out of his seat and yells at Timothy not to drink. So what is happening here? Is our poor Mr. Satterthwaite finally cracking up? in his dotage. It's been a long journey, after all. I, for one, am still surprised he went down that Harlequin's lane and had the wherewithal and stamina to come back and tell the tale. But let's try to figure out if there might not be more than meets the eye here by way of our bridge of clues. And this bridge, listeners, is all about the genes. Clue number one has to do with hereditary resemblance. And boy, oh boy, but does Christy play fair with this clue. I'm just going to quote directly from the text now. I have three quotes. First up, if anything, Timothy looked more as a son of Lily's might have looked. The fair skin and the high forehead and a delicacy of bone structure. Second quote, he looked affectionately at Timothy and then suddenly realized that he was not looking at Lily's son. Roland was Lily's son. Timothy was Beryl's son. Third quote. Timothy, his red hair glowing in the sun, red hair glowing with that same tint, that attractive sideways wave that Simon Gilead's hair had always had. Well, the deduction here is that Timothy must actually be the biological child of Simon and Lily, which Christy drives home not once, not twice, but three times in this short story by way of those three clues I just quoted. The red hair is awash since both these young men have red hair. And of course, that means that Roland is actually the biological son of Beryl and her first husband. Is this sounding familiar, listeners? We, of course, had the exact same situation in SOS, where there was confusion over which of these two daughters was biologically related to her parents and which was adoptive. All right, clue number two has to do with hereditary traits. (laughs) And boy, oh boy, is this a bad clue? (laughs) Because it's wrongheaded, I think, on two counts. Timothy exhibits colorblindness or Daltonism by way of having no idea that his red cup has been replaced with a blue cup. And an astute reader will deduce from the fact that Tom Addison is wearing one red shoe and one green shoe that he too is colorblind, since he presumably thinks his shoes match. It is noted in the story that he's wearing these mismatched shoes when Mr. Satterthwaite first sees him. And the deduction here is the same as the deduction in clue number one. Timothy, then, must be the biological grandson of Tom Addison, who passed his colorblindness down to Timothy through his daughter, Lily. Christy correctly states that the gene for colorblindness passes through a female, though I think she confuses the issue slightly by saying colorblindness isn't inherited by a female. It is. It's just that the gene won't express itself unless both X chromosomes feature it, which is significantly rarer than a man's single X chromosome having the gene for colorblindness, in which case he will be colorblind. That's why Daltonism is so much more common in men than women. But confusing red and blue, as Timothy does, and confusing red and green, as Tom Addison does, are technically two different types of colorblindness, or they could be. The fact that Christy chooses two different color combinations here just muddies the water, and I think it's unfortunate. (laughs) 
That, of course, is a nitpick. The real flaw in this clue is, why is it even necessary to switch the color of Timothy's cup here? We know for a fact that Beryl bought a new red cup when she went to the Harlequin Cafe. We were there. If the red cup she bought at the cafe that day is the one Timothy drank from and that she purposely shattered on the ground, well, then she should have just bought two red cups. (laughs) And that way she could have replaced the red cup with a new red cup. And then no one, such as Inez and Mr. Satterthwaite, would have noticed. And while I'm on this rant, why did Beryl even have to destroy the cup and replace it? This brought so much attention to Timothy's cup. Wouldn't it have been easier for her to drop whatever poison she used? We never do find out what the poison was. uh, To drop that poison into his cup when he wasn't there? It's just a terrible, terrible murder plot. So we find ourselves now in the world as it actually is. And sigh, we are in the same place here as we were last week with S.O.S., Even though Simon and Beryl have raised both these boys from the time they were babies, apparently Beryl has zero love for her non-biological son, Timothy. So much so that she's ready to murder him so that her biological son, Roland, who has been masquerading his entire life, apparently unbeknownst to him as Simon's biological son, she has done this so that Roland can inherit the cashola and estate from the rich Tom Addison. And forgive me, but I think I actually just found yet another flaw here in this puzzle. Christie writes that Beryl wanted Tom Addison's riches, quote, for her own son and through her own son, of course, for herself. She is a greedy woman. But in that these riches were never going to go to her, but instead would go to her child, who she would have influence over, would it have made much of a difference which of these young men inherited all of that wealth? We're never told about any personality differences between Roland and Timothy. They seem very similar, and there's no indication that Roland would be more easily controlled than Timothy. Couldn't she just have controlled her non-biological son and benefited from his wealth just as easily as she planned to do from her biological son? I have to say, and fast forward if you haven't yet read Elephants Can Remember, but this is the exact same sort of fuzziness surrounding an evil mother's plot to have her son inherit lots of moolah that we had in that book. It really wasn't clear in that book either what Mrs. Burton Cox's plan was after her son, her adoptive son, Desmond Burton Cox, came into a lot of money. We just knew that she wasn't a very nice person and that she was trying to take advantage of her son. So we have the same sort of fuzzy plot here on Beryl's part. And I have to wonder if we don't have in this very story, the beginnings of that plot point that Christie would go on to develop, unfortunately, not particularly well, in Elephants Can Remember. I have to assume she's writing this story just about a year or two before she would go on to write Elephants Can Remember. So it's interesting, I think, to see one of the seeds of that novel in this short story. But back to Beryl's plot here, because it really is bananas. And I think this situation is actually worse than what we had in SOS, believe it or not. Because the father figure here, Simon Gilead, he apparently had no idea that Timothy and Roland were switched when they were babies. This is what Christy writes. They were both babies, weren't they, when Simon remarried? It is very easy for a woman looking after two babies, especially if both of them were going to have red hair. I'm sorry, but any parent would know if their children were switched, even when they're babies. And sure, perhaps a British dad living in the mid-20th century would be a more distant parent than, say, a dad living in modern-day Los Angeles. But come on, I don't buy that. My conspiracy theory is that Simon was in on it, too, and he just let Beryl take the fall. (laughs) 
though it's not like Beryl gave him much of a choice because she totally pulls a runner here when she realizes that Mr. Satterthwaite and through Satterthwaite, Dr. Horton are onto her. So she just runs away. And as usual, this bonkers extra legal ending sticks <laughs> in a Mr. Quinn story. Beryl is free to latch herself onto another family and be a complete sociopath. And the boys will be none the wiser. Mr. Satterthwaite says about Roland, this way he needn't know about what his mother was trying to do. Which in a way is kind of nice, I guess. I mean, they're all family, right? Now the barrel's gone. It's just very odd. But I am not done with oddity. Oh, no, not by a long shot. Because we haven't dispensed with Mr. Quinn yet. While all this is going on, Mr. Satterthwaite also thinks he sees Mr. Quinn on the estate. It seems that the mysterious Harley Quinn has taken the form of a scarecrow. Oh, yes, a scarecrow. Down by the river that flows through the estate. Christy writes, it was an absurd idea, and yet if someone had piled up the scarecrow and tried to make it look like Mr. Quinn, it could have had the sort of slender elegance that was foreign to most scarecrows one saw. And Timothy informs Mr. Satterthwaite that they actually call this scarecrow Mr. Harley Barley. Because of course they do. It's fate. They even have a song they sing. Harley Barley stands on guard. Harley Barley takes things hard. Guards the ricks and guards the hay. Keeps the trespassers away. That was my own little rendition. Melody sold separately. (laughs) Christy did not include a musical staff in the text, though I wouldn't put it past her. She did compose music early in her life. Let's remember. So that happens. And then later on in the story, we get yet another moment in which the sunset seems to flood this scarecrow figure with light. We get it, Agatha. We get it. He's Harlequin. And there's a black dog, just like Hermes, in the vicinity of the scarecrow. And then, after Mr. Satterthwaite has averted disaster for Timothy and sanctioned Beryl's flight from the house, the scarecrow bursts into flames. Behind it was the sunset. A remarkable sunset that evening. Its colors illuminated the air around it, illuminated the burning scarecrow. So that's the way you've chosen to go, said Mr. Satterthwaite. Directly after this, Mr. Satterthwaite sees the ghost of Lily, biological mother to Timothy, whose life Mr. Satterthwaite just saved. And Mr. Satterthwaite tells her, It's all right, Lily. Your son is safe. She stopped then. She raised one hand to her lips. He didn't see her smile, but he knew she was smiling. She kissed her hand and waved it to him, and then she turned. She walked back towards where the scarecrow was disintegrating into a mass of ashes. She's going away again, said Mr. Satterthwaite to himself. She's going away with him. They're walking away together. They belong to the same world, of course. They only come, those sort of people. They only come when it's a case of love, or death, or both. And then Hermes, the messenger dog, comes flying across the lawn with a scrap of paper in his collar, which reads, Congratulations to our next meeting, HQ. And this is the final paragraph of the story, which for all my snark and eye-rolling, I have to admit affects me. Thinking about the elderly Christy writing this when she was clearly thinking about her own mortality, and honestly, thinking about my own struggles with and reflections on mortality in this last year, vis-a-vis Catherine, here is what Christy writes. Thank you, Hermes, said Mr. Satterthwaite, and watched the black dog flying across the meadow to rejoin the two figures that he himself knew were there, but could no longer see. The end. And you know, Catherine and I did actually read this story. We, many years ago, did an article for Agatha Christie Limited. We were so excited and honored to do this article for them. And it was all about the Quinn Satterthwaite stories. And this was one of the few stories we hadn't yet read 
when we were writing the article. So we did a quick read just to inform ourselves of the full Quinn Satterthwaite oeuvre. And I remember Catherine saying that she found this story very moving. And for a bunch of different reasons, I do too. All right, it's time to talk BritBox. We have talked about a number of the many, many offerings BritBox has when it comes to British mysteries. I'd like to showcase one more, which is Karen Peary. This is a brand new crime drama based on the best-selling novels by Val McDermid. Love Val McDermid. Such a smart writer. The series stars Outlander's Lauren Lyle as a brilliant young Scottish detective. She is reopening a murder case that has recently resurfaced as the subject of a controversial true crime podcast. How's that for a contemporary spin on a murder mystery investigation? I love it. I have very high hopes for this series, but you know, the great thing about BritBox is that the selection of mysteries is nearly limitless. So no matter what your very specific and idiosyncratic tastes may be, it really is possible to find something for every mystery lover on there. And hey, when in doubt, just throw on a Suchet Poirot episode. (laughs) That's what I always do. So go to BritBox.com and check out Karen Peary and the rest of the She Wrote Murder collection of Britain's best book-to-screen adaptations. And if you are listening to this in the US or Canada, use coupon code AGATHA at checkout to get 50% off the first month of your monthly subscription and unlock the El Dorado of mysteries that awaits you. Normally, this would be when I would talk about the adaptation for this story, but there is not an adaptation for the Harlequin tea set. The very first Mr. Quinn story in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection was adapted. Catherine and I discussed that when we covered that story. That's the coming of Mr. Quinn. But otherwise, there haven't been any film or television adaptations of the Quinn Satterthwaite stories. And that is just a massive shame. Catherine and I have talked a lot about that. There is a real opportunity for a modern and innovative and interesting adaptation of these odd, though so charming and so brilliant stories of Christie's. So I hope someone takes that opportunity sooner rather than later. Just a few comments I want to make about the story that I wasn't able to cover in my summary. One thing I didn't mention is that Simon and Beryl Gilead, when they get married and when they each lose their respective spouses, they are not actually living in England. They are all out in Kenya or Kenya, as I feel certain they would have pronounced it. And Mr. Satterthwaite, when he is telling the story of this family to Mr. Quinn, he mentions that Simon and Beryl moved back to England with their two boys at some point. And he says, well, you know what has happened in Kenya. And Kenya, of course, became independent from British rule in 1963, though the independence movement had been active starting in the 1950s. It's not exactly clear when this story is set, but it actually does seem to be set fairly near to the present day. And I'll bring up two references in the text to support that assertion. The first has to do with that Meerschaum pipe, which it's so important to note that Timothy uses. And when it appears, Roland says, Tim brought that back from Germany when he went. He's killing himself with cancer, smoking his pipe all the time. And that, to me, proved that Christie must have been setting this pretty close to the time in which she was writing it, because it wasn't until the mid to late 60s that the devastating effects of smoking were common knowledge. It was a very surprising comment, actually, for a character to make in an Agatha Christie story. Not that Christie's novels are populated by femme fatale smoking cigarettes with a holder. 
I don't want to stereotype her in that way, but there is certainly a lot of casual smoking in earlier Christie. And I think we just don't associate her with characters who would have knowledge (laughs) of the danger of smoking. And then Roland's reply is really interesting too. He says, no, I'm not one for smoking. I don't smoke cigarettes and I don't smoke pot either. Woo. Hello, 70s. (laughs) It's funny because calling marijuana pot now sounds dated to us. Most people, at least here in the US, I have no idea what the convention is in the UK. But in the US, weed is the familiar name people tend to use for marijuana these days. That has changed in my lifetime, for sure. Christie is being extremely au courant, calling it pot, in a short story published in 1971. But that too surprised me. And it's a real one-two punch, one right after the other. This casual reference to the dangers of smoking and then to pot. There's also a nice reference to ruinovating, since we are in an English village here. Tom Addison says, nobody's ruined our church yet by restoring it. Oh, how I love those Christy ticks. She just has certain references or character quirks that she inserts in her texts over and over again. So I just wanted to note that. I really love this story. I had such a good time reading it. And I was so thrilled to be back in the Satterthwurst. And I'm really sad that with the end of the story, I will now have to leave it. But you know what? We can always reread these Quinn Satterthwaite stories. I have every intention of doing so. They're too charming not to reread. So that is the Harlequin tea set. And for my next episode, I'm going to be doing something very exciting. In my interview with David Braun, who is the HarperCollins UK publisher of Agatha Christie, we talked a lot about the new collection of Miss Marple short stories. That would be Marple, 12 New Mysteries. And we had a general discussion about them, but we didn't really get into the nitty gritty. And I am going to do that with a very, very good friend of mine and of the podcast. That would be Brad Friedman. Brad is a former teacher. He is a scholar of mystery. And he is one of the best bloggers I have ever come across. To be a good blogger, you, of course, have to be a good writer. So Brad and his blog are very near and dear to my heart. The blog itself is called Ah Sweet Mystery! Exclamation point. You can find it at ahsweetmysteryblog.com. That's all one word. A-H-S-W-E-E-T-M-Y-S-T-E-R-Y-B-L-O-G.com. Brad left off the exclamation point for the URL. It's a blog that celebrates the golden age of detection in books and on screen. He is so knowledgeable about Agatha Christie and also about mystery in general and cinema. And I feel so fortunate that I've gotten to know him over the course of co-hosting this podcast. And he's just the perfect person with whom I can bask and wallow (laughs) in this new collection. So we are going to get into it. We're going to deep dive into this new Miss Marple collection. If you haven't yet read the collection and you intend to, you might want to read up before the episode. Cannot wait for that. If you should want even more content from the podcast, you could, of course, head over to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or just click the link in the notes to this episode. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And I would really appreciate it if you would give the podcast a rating and or a review if you haven't already done so. It really does help the podcast out. It is still meaningful six plus years on to get those ratings and reviews. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.